Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, April 28th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the woman whose accusation led to Emmett Till being lynched has died. Advocates encourage young Mississippians to get involved in shaping public policy that affects them. Plus, a look at how our understanding of and the way we talk about autism has evolved. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Authorities have confirmed that Carolyn Bryant Dunham has died at age 88. Around 68 years ago, she accused then-14-year-old Emmett Till of harassment, a claim which some say may have been a lie. The accusation would lead to the lynching of the young black teen in Money, Mississippi. It led to a murder trial that helped spark the civil rights movement. Dunham was never charged for her involvement in the attack, though an unserved warrant for her arrest was discovered last year in a courthouse basement. Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr. is Till's cousin and was with him on their trip to Mississippi in 1955. He says Till didn't return home with him. Despite her involvement, Reverend Parker says he holds no ill will against Dunham. My immediate thought being a man of the cloth for the many years and pastoring as I have, immediately your heart goes out to the loved ones who lost their loved ones. It's it's an automatic thing, and it's an innate part of a pastor and a minister of God. So my heart goes out, and they have my sympathy, and they have my prayers. We we grew up with the right attitude, never had any animosity, ill will, or hate toward Miss Bryant at all. And I, I think uh, maybe Till Bradley's reconcil- reconciliation speech said it all. We need to put that out there more uh, as to what she said. As people of God, you have a certain responsibility, innate responsibility to love everybody and to wish everybody well and pray for the world. Thank you for that. And you, you've said you have, you know, as a, a man of the cloth, there's no ill intention or ill will. Um, but when it comes to the th- th- that moment in time and what it meant for um, for justice, what does it mean, or, or how do you feel that this is a woman that uh, never apologized, never stepped foot in a courtroom for her part um, in what happened to Emmett Till? Uh, it, 
Is there is there a way to to look at it from a justice standpoint and reflect on that? Well, you know, being a man of the cloth, we have to look at it from a biblical perspective. We have we have no other choice. It, it's in the, in us. God says, "Vengeance is mine," and uh, and God, everybody reap what they sow, and you pray for the soul of every person in the world. Yes, sir. And now that this, I guess this chapter is closed. Um, you know, this part of it at least. What is the, the the legacy of Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley? What does that look like going forward? And and of course the work you do. I think we've been doing it all along. And uh, again, Mamie Till's two or three reconciliation speech had have us on a path, and that path continues. She took a lemon and she made lemonade, and her objective was to. She says like. Those people that did what they did to him, it's like they never exist. She's trying to help and serve mankind. We have a mission here, and we, we get to the job that we have. We hit, a, we hit that bump in the road. We've got to get back to the business at hand, and that's to serve humanity. And that's our commission. Our pastor the church started in her grandmother's house in 1926. So we both were on the same page when it comes to faith and our human human being in this world. And I'll just ask, I mean, are there any other, any other thoughts? And I haven't, you know, it's been a short conversation and I, I want to, you know, certainly appreciate and respect, you know, the thoughts that you've shared. Is there anything else about uh, your experience in Mississippi the nearly 70 years ago and the, the journey and the, the path since then? You know, we have to keep the story. We're not turning away from the story. We have to tell the truth. We seek the truth and want the truth known. And it helps us bring closure. Uh, Mississippi has changed. We've come a long way, and we still have a long way to go. So we don't want to forget that. Uh, if, we, if you forget that, you're subject to repeat what happened down there. We can't forget and just neglect what happened and what we experienced. You can't do that. you got to tell those stories. you got to keep it out there with love. can't have no animosity, ill will, or hate. you got to do it with love. And with concern of getting the story, getting the truth out, and selling the idea to people how to behave and treat humanity in their environment. Well, Reverend Wheeler Parker, thank you so much for your time and your reflection um, regarding the, this matter. We appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Coming up, getting youth involved in public policy. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Civil engagement leaders are speaking in Jackson about the importance of getting young Mississippians involved in public policy. During an event Thursday hosted by Democracy Now!, experts spoke about how state lawmakers could reach out to youth 
educate them about the democratic process, and get them engaged with the legislative part of it. Starkey Wilson is president and CEO of the Children's Defense Fund. He speaks with our Michael McEwen about the importance of having young people in politics. It's really important in this moment for us to think about uh, democracy as an investment in children and the future. Uh, and really pay attention to places like Mississippi uh, where we're seeing a regression uh, of democratic values and ideals in the state legislature and even in the relationship between states and cities. Uh, What we found in our work uh, at Children's Defense Fund is that this impact uh, on the reduction or the elimination of democratic ideals happens first in places where children are deeply impoverished and places that are governed by black and brown leaders. We see that playing out here, and we've heard it in conversation from local advocates and leaders uh, here. So in as much as we deeply invest in and care about what's happening and need to react to what's happening here in Mississippi. It's also true what is happening here has impact and is a trend line for what we're seeing across the country. And it has impacts not just on leaders, but on young people who are the least of these impacted by this legislation. So the Children's Defense Fund, you're recognizing your 50th anniversary. How have the problems that you all address, how have they changed, if, if at all, in that period of time? Yeah, it's one thing that we know um, by looking at the data from organizations like Child Trends, our partners in this work, is that over the last 30 years specifically, as we've expanded the social safety net, we've been able to reduce child poverty for all uh, citizens. Uh, And so that expansion of the safety net is critically important, including, I'll double tap here, the expansion of health care, which has driven um, the most significant increase in well-being for all citizens. So we can look back and say that our approach to focus on public policy has been spot on in order to advance well-being of people. We can look back 30 years and say it has worked to expand the social safety net and to make sure it's sustainable by doing it through public policy. Uh, And as we look forward, that means we have to protect uh, the mechanisms that we've used to get this done, which is state legislatures, the federal legislature, uh, budgets, uh, and grassroots mobilization among people. So we learned the lessons of the last 50 years and what we've been able to get really good things done. Uh, And we say going forward, we have to be more innovative. We have to protect our progress. We have to invest in multi-sector strategies, including with business and with others, in order to make sure the next generation of America's children does better than the last. And so with that being said about the next generation, one of the present themes in the event was the need for young people to be more involved in Mississippi politics. How can child poverty especially when ignored by the state legislature. How does it affect that? Yeah, we heard from young people today, including students from Jackson Jackson State University, um, that they are mobilizing and energized around making a Mississippi that they want to continue to live in. Uh, And I think leaders of this state have to be attuned to this matter of brain drain uh, because you've got young college students who want to who want to be in places that are as progressive as their ideals and the legislature is not showing them that right now and you have young people who we've heard from who are volunteering with children and deeply care about those children and so uh, if they care then leaders in the state have to care Otherwise, they're going to lose the remarkable gifts of this rising generation of college students who are on campuses littered throughout the state. The theme of this event is democracy in the South and in the country. There's been some concerns about it backsliding. 
with certain bills in the state legislature here, certain actions in states like Florida and Georgia and even Tennessee recently. Are you concerned that there's maybe a trend in the South with Democratic backsliding? And why do you think it's more present in the South? Well, indeed, we see this trend of uh, Democratic regression in the South, but we also pay attention to what's happening in places like uh, Wisconsin and Ohio and in Texas, where uh, we have offices that are fighting back uh, from some of these same issues there. We find hope in our history um, that the Children's Defense Fund was really grown out of um, the black freedom struggle here in Mississippi and in other places, Mississippi Freedom Summer being critical uh, to who we are and who we've become. And so we know um, that winning in the South, that growing and building in the South has the capacity to change lives across the country. And so we lean into that hope uh, from our own history and the civil rights struggle and say, yes, we see these challenges in the South. We're not ignorant uh, to the fact that they're happening other places, but if we can build the kind of beloved community we need here among people uh, in the southern states, then we can actually turn the moral tide in the country. Starsky Wilson is with the Children's Defense Fund, which hosted an event in Jackson yesterday to promote youth participation in the legislative process. Also among the speakers at the event was Maisie Brown, a student from Jackson State University. She advocates for the rights of black Mississippians and other underserved people in the state. One of the biggest barriers um, in including young people in Mississippi politics is because a lot of them don't know where they can get started. So a lot of them are like, I want to do advocacy work. I want to be at the Capitol. I want to protest. I want to be engaged. But nobody has ever reached back and shown me how or given me an opportunity to. And so I think that, you know, as a legislature as a whole, they could definitely do a better job of being intentional about including young people um, in the work that they do and not just in a performative way or just showing up for one day. Like, are you talking to young people about the policies that will ultimately impact them and their children and everything else? And so it just has to be more awareness made about how young people can actually get involved in this work. So the theme of the event that you just spoke at was about democracy in Mississippi. Why now in this moment in Mississippi politics is it important for young people to be involved? I think that right now, not even just in Mississippi, but across the country, we are having um, a wavering democracy. We're having a democracy that um, is being misconstrued and formed in the way that only benefits a small group of people here in America or only a specific group of people. And so in the context of Mississippi, when we have um, so much corruption that is being unearthed and unveiled and we're seeing this and we're you know, we're fighting for the most basic of rights. When you see the blackest city here and the largest city here, um, you have outside police forces coming in as if it's like a war zone out here. I mean, all of those different things are encroaching on people's rights. And, you know, and, and when we're talking about the context of young people, young people are generally more progressive. We are more energetic. We have the time. We have the energy. We don't have as much to lose as our parents or grandparents do at this moment. And so it's just really, really important that we channel the time and energy that we have in a positive way. We are really, really going to feel the impact of all of this. And so it's just super important for us to be a part of it. You finished high school during the pandemic. Yes. So at such a volatile time for you and for youth in the country, what motivated you to organize Jackson's Black Lives Matter protest while experiencing that yourself? 
Yeah, COVID-19 was honestly super, super traumatic. Like, the more I think about it, I'm like, wow. Like, we literally went on spring break and just never came back. I never saw some people ever again. That was completely unexpected. But I think that, you know, the murder of George Floyd really just, you know, I, I always talk about, I think the fact COVID gave us time to really sit and ruminate on a lot of issues. And so when we saw that video of George Floyd continuously being blasted on television, continuously being replayed, like, Normally, we'd be able to go to school and work to kind of distract ourselves with just, you know, oh, it's another one. Oh, it's another one. But this time, we were in our homes. We were watching a television. We had the time to sit and feel and get angry and get energized. And so I really think that we just struck the iron while it was hot work. So many people were just, just so engaged and enamored with what was going on in this country. Maisie Brown is a student at Jackson State University speaking about the role youth play in changing public policy. Coming up, we'll talk about autism. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. April is National Autism Awareness Month. Over the last 30 years, the ability to diagnose and treat autism spectrum disorder has evolved, but so has the way we talk about it. Garrett Yeager is director of ADA services at the Autism Center of North Mississippi. In part two of his conversation with our Michael Guidry, they discuss how the clinical language has changed and how much we still don't know about ASD. Now we have we have a good amount of adults that have autism spectrum disorder who are you know they're very capable and very willing to communicate with us about how they feel about some of the ways that we talk about these things right so they've been able to express to us that stuff like high functioning and low functioning is that's that is hurtful to them and it's something that they don't like and um, you know this is this is their community that we're working with and that we're wanting to help. And if we're wanting to help, then we should certainly be accepting of the, of the feedback that they're giving us. And that's where a lot of, of what we've learned has come from, is from adults who have autism who've been able to give us that feedback. And, you know, things like not using high-functioning, low-functioning has been one of the key things we've learned from that. You know, we tend to use more, um, uh, requires more support, so requires less support now instead of other terms. Or we'll talk about how it's on the spectrum and they have certain, you know, challenges in certain areas, um, rather than this kind of over-encompassing descriptor, you know, which is almost never fair to that individual, right? Um, but, I mean, I think that one of the things that's really important to point out that is it's really, you know, so, so different about autism and a lot of other things is that, you know, even though we're doing so much better of a job of diagnosing and we have gotten a lot of feedback from, from um, you know, adults with autism who've gone through different treatments and things like that. There's still so much about autism that we don't understand. What are some of the more common misconceptions uh, about autism uh, that you in the community feel need to be kind of squelched? Sure, yeah. So, um, you know, I think that when this topic comes up, what I usually like to just say is, 
you know, there's a lot, a lot of, of really good research being done on um, on autism, and by by really, really qualified, um, really good uh, researchers. And you know, the best evidence we have is what we should go by. You know, and and um, you know, there's a lot of anecdotal information out there that tends to, to what science says is not very accurate. And I think that we should go by what research says. And um, research right now doesn't doesn't point to there being any connection between something like a vaccine and autism. Um, you know, there, there seems to be some sort of genetic connection, but we don't know a lot of about it. You know, there's a lot of information about um, genetics and, and how it relates to autism that we don't understand. You know, there's a lot of evidence about, um, you know, they've tested things like um, gluten-free diets and these sort of things that um, a lot of families try and, and have some success on. And I think that's fantastic. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't try things. Uh, but I do think it's important to look at what the evidence says. And if there's other options that research and science is saying will be helpful to, to the child, you know, we should focus on those things first. The truth is we don't know. And anyone who says we do is lying to you because we don't know. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's one of the, the big questions here is, is you know, where, what, where does this come from and what causes it? And we don't know. Um, and of course, there's controversy surrounding the whole uh, "what causes it" question, um, and you know, and I think that that's something that we should also take into account. You know, there are individuals with autism who um, think that the pursuit of of trying to figure out what causes something like autism is in itself somewhat offensive um, because it kind of carries tones of preventative type medicines or um, preventative measures to prevent someone from having autism, and they don't look at themselves as something that has to be prevented. And I think that's a fair um, fair piece of feedback to take from them. Um, but we, there's still so much we don't know. Um, you know, we're still not doing a very good job of identifying it in, in girls. Um, we're still, we still, we still see a much larger portion of, of, um, male, uh, clients diagnosed with autism rather than female. And we don't really have any solid evidence on why that would be the case. Why females would be actually more rare to have autism. Uh, we just may not be identifying it as well in, in female clients. So, um, I think that that's important to look at too. And, you know, I think that, that there are there are people who are really good at this stuff that are out there researching it and trying to figure out how we can, you know, most uh, most help people and, and and ways that the world can change to most help people, you know. And um, I think all of that's very, very important. But I think it's, all, it's really important to keep in mind, too, that where we're at right now, <clears throat> there's still a lot that we really don't know. You've talked a lot about, like, the last 30 years, how diagnosing autism has changed. Uh, what has been the shift on the other side, uh, the treatment and services side, uh, and how has that changed over the last you know, 30 to 50 years? Uh, and how has the clinical perception of, of someone with autism changed during that time period as well? The currently accepted best treatment for um, autism is a therapy known as applied behavior analysis. Um, that is the kind of treatment that I provide to the, to the clients that I work with every day. Um, I'm a board-certified behavior analyst, BCBA, and um, that is the type of therapy I provide. Um, it is the recommended therapy by the, by the Surgeon General and by the American Autism Association and you know, a, lot of other, um, a lot of other expert organizations that this is the therapy that we've seen have the most success research-wise. Um, ABA has expanded a lot. Um, I would say... You know, 15 years ago, well, first of all, 15 years ago, we had none of it in Mississippi, zero. Um, so we've really seen all of this pop up in the last decade to 15 years. But even a decade ago, there was very minimal of it. Um, today, even in, even now, there's still really minimal ABA services available in the state. 
You know, we have a couple places here in Tupelo. We have um, us, and we have the Center for Behavior Analytics Services that are also in Tupelo. Um, we have a few others in the surrounding areas, but Meridian doesn't really have much. Um, you know, the, the Jackson has a few, but the coast doesn't have too much, and Hattiesburg, I think, only has one. So, you know, you look at our state as a whole, and we're still really struggling, especially if you're in a rural area that's not really anywhere near any of these larger metropolitan areas. You probably don't have access to these services right now, and that's one of the things that has improved, but still has a long way to go. We also have other therapies that have, have come a long way in being able to help individuals with autism. We have you know, counseling, mental health services that have improved a lot. Um, social worker services are, are invaluable as well to a lot of our um, clients. And you, of course, have things like occupational therapy and speech therapy um, that are also extremely, extremely helpful for a lot of our clients and have made a lot of advancements in the last 10, 15 years as well. So I have a lot of um, adult friends who, who have autism and you know, a lot of them tell me, like, you know, hey, I, I wish more people would just talk to me about autism and ask me about it, you know. And um, and that's not going to be true for, for every person you come across, you know. But um, for a lot of my friends, they're really, really open and they're really willing to talk to you about some of the challenges they face and ways that you could be, um, you know, more accepting or, or um, you know, more accommodating to them. And um, they're very, very open and willing to speak about those sort of things and, um, I think that, you know, one of the best things you can do is to, is to make a friend who has autism, you know, and, and learn from them. Garrett Yeager with the Autism Center of North Mississippi. Um, thank you so much for this, for this well of knowledge that you've provided um, and, and, and helping raise awareness and acceptance. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.